Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be talking about the occult. That's right. Today, we are joined by Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers and the Mysterious World podcast to look at the dark forces and how they affect the lives of Catholics. Now, this isn't just Catholics in our own generation. I mean, this has affected Catholics throughout every generation, even all the way back to the Acts of the Apostles. Let's find out. It's good to be back uh, having uh, Jimmy uh, on another episode. This is definitely a very interesting topic, probably broad in range. And so it'd be good to, to hear some of your research into this area and uh, get a good conversation going. Yeah. And, you know, Jimmy is going to be taking a Thomistic approach to this and looking at all these different areas of the occult and, and using Aquinas to really understand what the church uh, teaches and how it views these things. But we're going to be talking things like astrology and healing crystals and psychic powers, drawing lots, and even demon babies, right? Um, so we're, we're going to get into a really cool episode with Jimmy Aiken, who's really a fantastic apologist. And if I do say so myself, he's got the beard of all three of us combined and then some. He is a beard hero of ours and an apologetic <laughs> hero of ours. I so think it's, it's, it's great to be on uh, with Jimmy. I mean, this is exciting for me. I love his podcast. I love his work on Catholic Answers. So, man, it just gets cool and cool doing this show all the time. And Howard wishes he could have your beard. Oh, he does. <laughs> Howard's Howard's beard's a little demon baby compared to that angelic man. (laughs) Now, if if demon babies don't suck you into this show, I don't know what will. That would be a succubus. (laughs) Starting out, I think it's really interesting that just recently in the scriptures we had Galatians, and it was St. Paul expressing to us in the context of the, the Solemnity of Pentecost, what are the fruits of the Spirit? But he also warns us. He warns us of the fruits of the flesh and and the works of the flesh. And he expresses that now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are immorality, uncleanliness, licentiousness, idolatry, witchcrafts, enmities, contentions, jealousies, angers, quarrels, factions, parties, envies, murders, drunkenness, carousing, and such like. So today we're we're specifically focusing in on that witchcraft element and and the occult and the acts of the apostles you know in the in the missionary journey to Ephesus it's very interesting because if you want to check this out I would highly recommend going to chapter 4 of the acts of the apostles and verse 17 and this became known to all the Jews and Gentiles living in Ephesus And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus came to be held in high honor. And many of those who believed kept coming and openly confessing their practices of this form of witchcraft and occultism. And many who had practiced magical arts collected their books and burnt them publicly. And they reckoned up the prices of them and found the sum to be 50,000 pieces of silver." Thus, mightily did the word of the Lord spread and prevail. I wonder how many silver pieces Barnes and Noble is making right now off of the witchcraft and occultism of, uh, you know, at least 30. I can tell you that much. (laughs) At least 30, my brother. So, Jimmy, I think a good way to start this episode is what is the occult? I mean, it's 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 such a sinister sounding word and it's, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard it. But what technically how can one understand what we mean by saying occult. Well, the term has changed meaning over time. It comes from the Latin word occultus, and that just meant hidden. And so back in Aquinas's day, anything that people didn't understand would be called occult because it had a hidden explanation. And Aquinas talks about how there are many things in the world that uh, man is not able to assign a reason for, You know, there's lots of phenomena in nature. They didn't know why this happened. And so they would say, well, that's it has an occult reason. It has a hidden reason that we don't know. Um, A classic example that Aquinas gives is magnets, um, because magnets obviously have an influence. They have a power 
that affects certain, you know, certain kinds of metal and other magnets, but nobody knew how they worked. And so uh, Aquinas would say, well, magnets have an occult power. Uh, And that didn't mean evil or sinister or demonic or anything like that. It just meant something that people didn't fully understand. And so there's been a shift in the meaning of the word occult between Aquinas's day 800 years ago and our day. Uh, today, in English, when people talk about occult stuff, they do mean things that have at least a reputation for being sinister or demonic or things like that, or magical, shady. Um, but that wasn't the original meaning of the term. And it's fascinating when you read Aquinas and what he has to say about subjects that we would consider a cult, he's actually very even-handed. He does not automatically say, well, this thing is a cult, therefore Christians should have nothing to do with it. Um, he's, he acknowledges that there are hidden aspects to God's design for the world, and that it can be legitimate to use things like magnets that have properties that uh, people don't fully understand or can't fully explain. They're part of God's creation. On the other hand, there are uh, sinister, demonic things as well, and superstitious things. And so Aquinas actually articulates a set of principles for how to sort the good from the bad. Um, A while back, I wrote an article, and I actually put these principles in kind of an algorithm. So you can see, okay, here's a practice, and you ask these questions about it, and Aquinas will tell you if it's good or bad, whether you can use it or not. And he comes to some surprising results at times. You know, Jimmy, I have the link for that article. I'll make sure that I post that. So if you go to CatholicTalkShow.com and look at this episode's page, we'll make sure that we have a link both to that article that Jimmy wrote with that algorithm, but then also Catholic Answers and his podcast, Mysterious World. Um, But Father Rich, I think one of the unique things about the Catholic Talk Show is that this is the only place that you're going to learn where both Thomas Aquinas and Insane Clown Posse have something in common, and that's they have no friggin' idea how magnets work. And I think that makes us really unique and an outstanding reason that you should subscribe and like this channel. So if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you click like, subscribe, and follow. And if you're listening in, go to CatholicTalkShow.com or at Catholic Talk Show on any of the major social medias like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok now as well. And you can follow us. Now, Father Rich, in the priesthood, you know, I'm sure you've had people who felt that they've been affected by occultic powers, powers of evil, darkness, et cetera. And they're coming to you because, you know, the collar kind of gives them the confidence in the priesthood of Jesus Christ to find a way to protect themselves from these evils that lurk and prowl about. Um, Have you had any experiences in the priesthood with either the occult or people being affected by it? All all the time. I mean, just even um, just the other day, I was out at the mission grounds and, and just witchcraft happening after hours, people hopping the fence and, and uh, you know, doing these uh, very satanic uh, rituals on the, on the mission grounds to deface the beauty and the integrity of the most important property in, you know, the United States of America, arguably in, in North America, you know, the establishment of the Catholic faith uh, by, by the Spanish in 1565, those grounds are assailed constantly with, uh, you know, with, with, you know, this occult practice. Um, but all the time, you know, even in, in my priesthood, people coming uh, because of concerns that they may be possessed or or uh, oppressed by demonic influences or that, you know, I just got a phone call the other day, some brother of mine in, in my men's prayer group, um, <clears throat> you know, from, from past communities called up and said, you know, I'm, I'm worried that I sold my soul, you know, so it, it happens, it happens all the time. And I feel such a, a great solidarity, you know, we opened up in relationship to St. Paul's ministry and, and the apostles ministry, this is what priests do. And and this is what we need to call upon is the power and the name of Jesus Christ. And it shows that we do have a spiritual proclivity toward fascination and, and toward, you know, powers that we can manipulate or control. And sometimes it gets us into some very risky business. Yeah. Catechism 2117, very firmly, and distinctly warns against Catholics 
dabbling in the occult. So Catechism 2117, all practices of magic or sorcery by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one service and have a supernatural power over others, even if this were the, for the sake of restoring their health, are gravely contrary to the virtue of religion. These practices are even more to be condemned when accompanied by the intention of harming someone or when they have recourse to the intervention of demons. Wearing charms is also reprehensible. Spiritism often implies divination or magical practices. The church, for her part, warns against the faithful, the, warns the faithful against it. Recourse to so-called traditional cures does not justify either the invocation of evil, evil powers or the explo, exploitation of another's credulity. Now, I think the most I, you know, common, I gotta say, Sheil, like the, the fact that you're pointing this out, that's one of the most important catechetical references that you just shared. And it falls under the context in the catechism from 2110 to 2117 and then beyond that falls underneath the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So we highly recommend, again, we, we're constantly picking up the Bible, we're constantly picking up the catechism, and we're sharing what the Catholic Church actually teaches. So take a moment, you know, after the show. Pop open the catechism, 2110, and read through those catechetical references because it's really going to fill out very substantively, you know, just that introduction to what this is all about. Now, as part of that, and I think it was even mentioned there, Jimmy, I think the most common form of a cult that a lot of people practice and is widely accepted uh, is, is astrology. Um, now, you know, we'll hear things like the, well, the, the Magi were astrologers or their signs in the heavens. Um, you know, we've done an episode on astrology before, but I'd like to get your insight is, you know, how much of astrology is the occult? How much of it is harmless? How much of it is damaging or uh, dangerous to a soul? Well, um, so what I can tell you is that there has been a big shift in how astrology has been regarded over the course of Christian history. Now, early on, it was very quickly recognized in the age of the Church Fathers that there are some forms of astrology that are directly contrary to the Christian faith. And the ones that the Church Fathers and that later theologians um, were very concerned about was anything that was fatalistic, anything that would deny human free will and say that the stars control men's fates. And so that was recognized very early on as something that's just flatly contrary to Christian truth, because we have free will from God. Now, it's also obvious, though, that the heavenly bodies do have an effect here on Earth. I mean, the sun, you know, it, that's why the presence of the sun is why the day is warmer than the night. The moon affects the tides. The sun drives the weather to a significant extent. And the ancients, therefore, said, well, okay, so what about the other bodies that we see? What about the planets, the wandering stars? And, and they thought that the planets would have more of an influence than we would today because the scientific revolution had not occurred yet. And so, uh, you know, people natively find patterns in things, even when there's not really something there. We, we, our, our brains are wired for pattern recognition. And so they would look for patterns between what they were seeing in the sky and what they were seeing on Earth, because they knew the heavenly bodies have an influence. They just overestimated how much it is. Would, and would that an really, example of that be like when, when Mars was the closest to Earth, you know, hearing, you know, ruminations of now there's going to be a massive war. There's going to be like so much bloodshed. I remember hearing something like that. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, because pagans had as associated different deities with the planets, like Mars is the god of war. Maybe the motions of the planet Mars will tell you something about when wars are going to be fought. Um, so yeah, watch that's out when Mercury is retrograde. That is so bad, right? <laughs> I mean, wow. I look, I can't be blamed for the things I do right now because Mercury is going backwards. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of things that you hear in astrology that to me are utterly ridiculous. But you're, you're right, and I think I've read and you know, tavistically, Aquinas saying that they're they do have an influence. I mean, even if you look at things like quantum entanglement, you know, matter has an effect on matter, it is part of creation, but you know, to what extent they control our nature or our decisions or our outcomes, I think is a good distinction as to whether or not they're harmful, right? Right. And in Aquinas's day, it was uh, astrology and astronomy were basically the same thing. 
They had not been disentangled yet. And so asking back then, do you believe in astrology would be like saying, do you believe in astronomy? You know, people would say, well, of, of course, there, I believe that there's stuff going on with the stars. They just thought it was a lot more. Aquinas thought, and he talks about this in the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas thought that astrologers could use the stars to predict things like the weather and droughts and even some human events like wars. Because even though, in Aquinas's view, the stars can't affect our souls, they can affect our bodies, in his view. And so they could, for example, stir up feelings of anger in people, and that could lead those people. Now, they, people have free will. They could choose to say no to their feelings of anger, but um, most people don't. They just kind of go with their feelings. And so he would say astrologers could predict things like wars, at least probabilistically. They couldn't do it with infallible certitude. Now, after Aquinas's day, the scientific revolution happened, and we would today say the stars have much less influence. And it's superstitious now to try to attribute this kind of influence to the stars. But they knew less in Aquinas's day, and it, it wasn't superstitious for them. But from what we know now, it would be. And so the catechism has a pretty strong statement against using horoscopes. It's funny because I just had one of my kids that was confirmed in the faith and we're all standing in line and I've got, this was on May 18th, just a few weeks ago. And, and, you know, I'm standing in line with Bishop Estevez. I've got 85 kids all processing in my meeting with Bishop went great. And I'm introducing him to the kids. And one of the kids brings up like a horoscope thing, you know, and I'm like, and how much she enjoys looking at horoscopes. And, and she, it was started by like, um, father, are you Sagittarius or are you this or that? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm a priest of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, like I, I said, I rely on the power of God, you know, and, and, uh, and we had this exchange. I said, Catholics, we don't, we don't lean into horoscopes or, you know, astrology at all. You're embarrassing me in front of the bishop. Exactly. That's how I was feeling. I'm like, oh my gosh. This is a total cancer Gemini move to pull. Right? <laughs> and it's like, it's like, I have totally failed you. Why did we not talk about astrology? <laughs> um, another, another thing, Jimmy, that you've mentioned some of the things, uh, in particular that article you wrote, are like healing crystals and maybe kind mm -hmm. of um, – folk medicine, which I think a lot of times, if you look at the classic example of a witch, it's this, you know, woman with all these exotic, you know, eye Herbs of a newt and, and yeah. Right. But then you also look at someone like St. Hildegard von Bingen with her physica and very much, it's kind of on the same typecast where she's looking at the humors and the relationship of these different herbs and physical materials, even rocks to how they can affect the body. So what's the divide and, you know, what can and cannot be used by Catholics in a natural homeopathic or, you know, holistic sense. This is a really fascinating one because, you know, we have new agers today who are all into like crystal healing and you put a little piece of quartz around your neck or maybe you've got a, a bracelet with a magnet in it and it's supposed to have some health benefits. And actually, this goes way back. Um, originally, now, uh, Father Richard quoted the passage from Galatians where Paul's listing the works of the flesh. And in the translation he, he quoted, he mentioned witchcraft. If, I'm, if memory serves, in the Greek text there, the word is pharmakeia. And pharmakeia is where we get the English word pharmacy, because at the time, um, medicine and magic and religion were all bundled up together, kind of like astronomy and astrology were. And so there was some suspicion in the Christian community about various medical practices, because you would have these people who were physicians and maybe not Christian, and they would be doing stuff with herbs. Um, but then in addition to the herbs, they would be saying pagan prayers over them. And so it was all kind of tangled up together, and it took centuries for those to become disentangled. But that's why we have the image of witches, you know, preparing potions with various natural ingredients. When it comes to inorganic things like rocks and stones and so forth, 
uh, again, in the science of the day, it was thought that these would have beneficial health effects. So, for example, Hildegard of Bingen in her Physica, in the section where she's talking about emeralds, she thinks you can use emeralds to treat epilepsy. And she says if someone's having an epileptic fit, put an emerald on their tongue. And I guess hopefully they don't swallow it. But uh, she, she thought that, uh, that that would have a beneficial therapeutic effect. Aquinas thought you could use sapphires to stop bleeding. He also thought you could use gold to, to treat depression. And not just because you're happy you have gold and so you're rich. He thought the gold itself would have an effect on your mood. And we've, you know, with subsequent scientific study, we found that, well, okay, they're kind of wrong about those things. But it doesn't mean they're wrong about everything because if you've ever noticed, if you uh, are out in public and you look at door handles and railings, frequently you will see they're made out of copper or they or copper alloy or you know like brass. And if you look in the plumbing in a lot of buildings, you'll see the pipes are made out of copper. And the reason for that is copper is a kind of metal that has a natural antimicrobial property. And so it will kill germs. And that's why it's used for water piping to try to kill the germs in the water. That's why it's used for door handles and railings that people put their hands on. So actually, some of these substances do turn out to have therapeutic effects. And that's really the, the thing that has to be sorted out. Um, rather than saying, oh, we should just banish all thought of using inorganic substances, okay, that's kind of superstitious in one way. That's being too scared of it. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be credulous and just accept any claim like emeralds are going to cure epilepsy. What you have to do is look at what the science says about what properties do these things really have. And if it has a beneficial therapeutic property, well, then you can use it for medicine. If it doesn't, then it's superstitious to use it. What I love about that is that we're continuing to perceive the mystery of what it is and continuing to scientifically expose this is what it can be used for and and there has to be a sense of you know science and and you know that sense of uh, you know fetus at ratio that that faithfully we're continuing to engage all of creation learning from it and then drawing that into the mystery of God itself. Like we can, we can come to study the, the very properties of anything that is in existence, but ultimately at the very end of it, it still remains a mystery, but it's just that we know, we, we know more about it. Yeah. And, you know, you look at maybe the evolution of the way a chemical is treated, you know, in the 1880s, you know, it's like, well, I'm kind of depressed. Okay. Well, you know, Go drink some heroin, right? It's great. Some Coca-Cola, you know. Here's some cocaine. And, Laudanum back in the day, yeah. Right, yeah. Whatever, man. It's you know, it's like a fish concert, you know, in the old west, right? Um, but then you know, the understanding of the effects kind of you know catch up, and those things are no longer acceptable. But back then, I mean, these were medical doctors. These are modern men of science, you know, at the time. Um, but then you look at a thing like LSD, and you know, it started off as an experiment. Then it's completely pushed back against. And now there's a thought developing in science of microdosing for depression, right? So there's always development of the understanding of sciences. So to hold Aquinas to his view, but not hold the entire medical field to the development of the understanding of material usage is an unfair thing to do just because he was a medievalist, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. What's point. really valuable in Aquinas are the principles that he articulates. Right. The science of his day has been superseded, but the principles he uses are, are actually quite good. So he would say, well, if you let's say you've got a thing, you want to use it to treat somebody uh, for a medical condition, will it work is one of his questions. And if it works, then you can say, okay, how does it work? Is the effect purely natural? And Aquinas would say, well, if it works and if it's purely natural, you can go ahead and use it. On the other hand, if it works, but it's not purely natural, we've got more questions to ask. Because if it's not natural, then there's something supernatural going on. So what's the source of supernatural power? Is it God? Is it angels? Is it demons? And depending on the answer to that, it'll either be acceptable or not acceptable, depending on who you're calling upon to do it. 
and now we're how getting, you're now we're getting apart. into it. Now we're really getting into it. So breaking that open, you know, like what would be, uh, you know, kind of articulating what that is? Is it, is it um, that that the human person then manipulates this power as its as its own to perform this type of effect, or like how would you start to describe? you know, the practices of witchcraft or sorcery or the occult uh, in that respect, kind of uh, in a theological framework and yes. why it's bad. So there's a, there's a kind of mix of different practices, and uh, some of them Aquinas would just classify as superstitious. Others are much more sinister. An example of a superstitious one is um, back in the day, in his day, people would make these um, what they called astronomical images, and it would be uh, something that was, you know, some kind of substance. It could be an emerald, let's say. So they'd have a little emerald thing. They would want to use it to treat a person. But then they would say, I want to increase the power of this thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to carve an astrological symbol on it, maybe the symbol of the planet Mars, and that will attract power from the planet Mars to make this even more effective in treating someone. And Aquinas would say that's just superstitious because a symbol can only be recognized by an intellect. And so the planet Mars is a planet, and it's not it's just a star in his view. And so as a result, writing a symbol of Mars is not going to draw any extra power from Mars. So you're just being superstitious in what you're doing. You're, you're believing too much in this thing. Right. On the other hand, uh, demons do have real power. And Aquinas would say, if you're, if you're invoking demons, that's obviously really bad. And the fascinating thing is there were people in his day who would push back on that idea. In fact, um, uh, there were a class of, there were priests, in fact, who were engaged in magical practices. They were the educated ones, you know. They were the ones who could read the Latin tomes and so forth. And so there was kind of an undercurrent in the priestly community where some priests would say, look, um, God made everything, including the demons. Christ is stronger than the demons, so why shouldn't we call up demons and use the power of Christ to get them to do our bidding? And like maybe force someone, force a demon to heal somebody. Like trying and to domesticate them almost? Exactly, yeah. Now Aquinas's viewpoint is do not do that. Um, you Good cannot, advice, Tommy. You, you cannot trust these guys. Uh, they will always betray you. Don't think that you're going to be able to master them in such a way just by saying, I command you in Jesus' name that they're always going to do what you want. They'll also lie to you. And so he would say, this is a very mistaken view, uh, and it's dangerous, and you should stay away from them. But it is something that some people were arguing f in favor of and trying to do that in a Christian context. So what we're talking about here, I think, too, is now we're getting into even more of a nitty-gritty where it's like the intent of participating in something like this. Obviously, if it is supernatural, symbol-driven, beyond that of the natural world, then the person could have an intent or not have an intent. I mean, they could just be carrying on a tradition or not carrying on a tradition or whatever it is. The The thing that always comes up to me, and I, I don't do it, I'm probably too uh, fat and out of shape for it, is yoga. Right. You got you got these people. And in my in my opinion, I look at them. I don't know any of the deities of the Indian whatevers, but I look at them like they're stretching. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I look at it. I'm like, oh, it looks like they're stretching. I don't understand what's wrong with it. But but I've also heard a Catholic argument where it's like, hey, they're actually performing something that is for, you know, calling on something that's supernatural. That's not of God. Is there a relation between those two things there? So what Aquinas would say is um, that this is a practice that can be looked at more than one way. If your intent is just to do stretching exercises, then that's all it is to you. On the other hand, put my arm behind my head, I'm praying to the god Kali. Yeah. Well, then to me, that becomes a symbol for praying to the god Kali, but for someone else it wouldn't be. And so it, it really will depend on your intent. It's like it's, it, these would just be th these bodily postures would be the equivalent of words. And what a word means depends on who's using it. Um, in, you know, uh, in, it, you can have a word that means one thing in English and it can mean something completely different in Japanese. Right. 
So it's really the community of users of symbols that give the symbols their meaning. And if you're giving particular postures meaning that is a prayer language to pay gods, well, then you shouldn't be doing that. Right. But if you're a member of another community for whom those symbols, those bodily postures don't have that symbolic meaning, then all you're getting is exercise. And I think that's built on the fundamental premise that those postures really don't have any power over God. It, yeah. Even if you do have that meaning, they don't have power over God. God can still yeah. work in and through that to reach you and bring you to him. And if, um, if, if God didn't want people to be able to put their arms behind their head, he wouldn't have built us with the ability to do that. <laughs> that's, that's I don't know that that's a yoga stretch, but I should be. <laughs> it should be. It. it should be. I think I could do that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, when I was in India, I was I was spending some time in Mumbai and working with the daughters of St. Catherine and some diocesan priests. And, you know, at that time I was going back and forth between, you know, what's your position on yoga? <laughs> no pun intended. And, you know, like I, I realized, you know, when I was with this community of priests and the lay faithful, they would gather and spend time before the Blessed Sacrament and adoration and exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. And then they would go up to a flat and there would be like 30, 40 people and they would go through an exercise, you know, exercises of what, you know, appears to be yoga essentially, but it's all in the context of a very prayerful time with Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament and centering prayer and, and really meditating and exercising the body. And it was very evident to me witnessing that firsthand that this is this is something good that's that's kind of being disposed to Jesus Christ and and um, it was it was an interesting experience. Now, Father Rich, how long we known each other? Half a decade more. You know I'm going to disagree with you here, and <laughs> I and I certainly agree that again, like Brian said, you know, moving your body in a particular way without intention has there's it's not a you know. You're not messing with a Ouija board, right? right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just a movement. Yeah, I mean, you're not calling on the name of any any type right. of deity. But consciously pursuing yogic practices, mm -hmm. in my view, and in the view of a lot of people, is inoculating yeah. you towards another religion. Now, and it's also weakening your bond with the own, with the own traditions of your church. Now, there's a nuance, right? Obviously, people can... Do yoga poses. I mean, there's a group, um, Soul Core. Soul Core. Fantastic women. They do stretches and poses to pray the rosary. And it's a great exercise. Mm -hmm. But the pursuit of yoga, how many times have you said, have you seen someone who's like, I got really into yoga and all of a sudden I just can't stop reading St. Anselm? Doesn't happen that way. You and I know it both that when people start going down that road, they start to find or pursue spirituality depends, in a different direction. It depends direction. on the community. It That's depends right. on the community. Well, everything, yeah. there's always... So, like, everything, that, everything that was being done by this community was strictly Catholic. Well, you right. just everything. said it yourself. You just disputed yourself, Ryan, because you said, you know, these, these women did yoga and they're like, we want to infuse God into it. So that's it but, but the that's, opposite direction. True. Exactly. Like they were, they were praying instance. the rosary in India. They were, right. they were doing all of those practices. Would you guys were, at least concede that it's rare that somebody's spiturally mature enough to not go down that road and start to drift away from the church? It, 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 it could certainly happen. It happens all the time. And, and I will give value to what you're saying because right. I do see it pastorally, but it always, always, always depends on the community. It and more often than, of course, and more often than not, and you, have someone of, you have someone of little or no faith who starts getting into yoga and get whisked away and they get whisked away. You know, it's Absolutely. not somebody with a fully developed conscious or a very mature yeah. sense of faith that it's going to damage. It's going to damage people who are relatively agnostic or non-practicing who then find their spiritual fulfillment in that and then start going down that road of, well, now I need to align my chakras and Whatever. Which, which Jimmy, we need question. we need Catholic answers right now. Jimmy, yeah, where Jimmy, are you coming in? On, where are you coming in on with this, your Jimmy? mighty beard of wisdom? <laughs> solve this for put us. the pipe. Put the I, pipe in, and then you know. <laughs> I would I would say that um, you know that there is this danger here because in our culture, uh, yoga and similar practices are associated with non-Christian religious ideas, 
Um, on the other hand, I, that doesn't mean that I would say all Christians should stay away from them. In fact, you could make a counter-argument that Christians should move into this field and do, like, we're going to do these poses to pray the rosary, or put it in a Christian context so that it becomes a form of evangelization precisely to the people who would otherwise be attracted to uh, to yoga, because you've got these people who are there. They, what they want is exercise, and they think, "Oh, this is a kind of low impact exercise. It looks like it's healthy. It's got a good reputation. I'm going to go to this yoga class." And then when they go to the yoga class, where they're there for exercise, they then get all this stuff about chakras. Yes, and so it would be better to have an exercise class that these people could go to, where it's like, "Okay, now we're going to use the bodies that God." God gave us, and yes. we're going to praise Him by what we're doing with our mm -hmm. bodies. Yeah, so that's soul, soulcore.com. They have online courses. They have DVDs. They have a, they're developing an app, and great ladies out of Carmel, Indiana, I believe, Ryan. Yeah, um, and, amazing stories too. Yeah. These women have just amazing stories. See, and I don't know answer, if you know this too. The next season, actually, Ryan Shield is going to have his own specific video exercise series, hey. and it's all the different postures that we could take from yoga That's and right. put in a Christian practice, so we can be ortho orthodox and and talk about orthopraxis you're going to show us those different moves shield I'm, oh, rich I'm, I'm i am made i am made out of gristle and steel i do not bend i'm flexible <laughs> like a good intellect should not be but a good faith should be <laughs> but no i you know jimmy that is again that's such a measured answer and our, our society doesn't like measured thoughtful responses like they just want to they want you to say no throw every yoga mat into a pit and burn it with all the amulets and demon babies and then everyone else wants to say well no yoga is the greatest thing since i don't know something else like yoga sliced right? bread Which was sliced first bread. introduced in 1927 <laughs> that's right i like that quote I like, but you I know like there comment. is a nuance to it and i think that is you know taking that thomistic approach and that nuance saying why how you know going through these questions, if more people in our society would have that kind of discernment, that power of discernment, there's a lot more things that uh, could open up to the world that can be used as, like you said, a, a, a tool for, you know, evangelization that right now we're probably not, I don't know, wise enough to be able to use. And Aquinas is so helpful with that and, and being thoughtful about it. And then looking at St. Ignatius, because like the Jesuits mastered the fact of going into different cultures and mm -hmm. adapting and drawing in and sanctifying so that they can meet the people where they are in their practice and draw them in more deeply. So I, I love this conversation. Yeah, so keep so keep talking track trash about Catholicism yoga teachers because we'll come in we'll steal your whole thing and everything will be <laughs> ours now. like yeah like we've done with everything else don't 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 force our hand we'll do that <laughs> um Jimmy now yeah. there's a couple things that are a little bit more I guess we talk about things that maybe are physical or mm -hmm. part of the creed of the discernible visible world but let's talk about those things that we profess, you know, in the creed of the invisible world, the things unseen, demons, ghosts, okay. you know, uh, spirits, um, aliens, not aliens, <laughs> <laughs> but all those types of things. We you know, can talk what aliens does, on another show. That's yeah. right. We'll have Jimmy back on and do a whole episode on aliens. I'd love to. Yeah. But what does the church, what does Aquinas say? What does the formidable Jimmy Aiken say about Demons, ghosts, and, uh, you know, okay, so, vampires, witches, etc. Yeah, so in terms of, in terms of demons, uh, they're real. Uh, they are fallen angels, and they are created intellects that do not by nature have bodies. They are stronger and smarter than humans, and you cannot trust them, and you want to stay away from them. Uh, in terms of ghosts, uh, you, you know, there's this common meme in our society. You see it going back into the 20th century and even the 19th century of ghosts don't exist. Of course they do. Uh, a ghost is – English has this double vocabulary that comes from Romance languages like Latin and German, which is the base language that English comes from. And so you have um, two words for the same thing. In Latin – as I'm sure Father Richard could confirm, spiritus means spirit. In German, geist 
means spirit. Well, you bring those into English, spiritus becomes spirit, geist becomes ghost, but they mean the same thing, which is why the Holy Spirit is also called the Holy Ghost. So if spirits exist, ghosts exist. The question, and they do, the Christian faith teaches we have spirits that survive death. So ghosts are real. The question is, do they manifest to people? Now, a lot of times people may think a ghost is manifesting when really it's their imagination or they just need to re readjust their air conditioning vent to get rid of the cold spots, but, and it's not really a ghost. But um, as Catholics, we would say God does sometimes allow the spirits of the dead to manifest to people, like Fatima, you know, all of the Marian apparitions and other apparitions of saints. That's a, those, those are real human spirits. In Mary's case, she's also got a body that God allows to manifest. Um, if you, if you uh, look a little more broadly and look at what Aquinas would have to say, Aquinas would say that not only can the spirits of the saints manifest to us, he would say the spirits in purgatory can manifest to us. And there are reports of that in Catholic history where a spirit will manifest who is apparently in purgatory, and they may, for example, ask for prayers to help get him out of purgatory. Aquinas would go even further and say if God wants it, he can have the spirits of the damned manifest to the living, perhaps as a way of scaring them back onto the straight and narrow. This is kind of the Christmas carol, Jacob Marley shows up and tells you what awaits you if you don't repent mm -hmm. kind of thing going on. So, um, but Aquinas you brought up was, something interesting, though. You said, uh -huh. that God, you said that God would allow that. Would, in any case, demons be able to manifest in a, a soul like that as well? Well, demons could can show up and pretend to be all kinds of stuff. Uh, they can pretend to be good angels, and there's no reason why they can't pretend to be uh, a human spirit as well. Okay. In fact, there there are situations where even people who were having genuine apparitions, like Sister Sister Lucy at Fatima, for a while questioned, is this really the Virgin Mary appearing to me, or could it be the devil? Mm -hmm. So demons can show up and, and impersonate all kinds of things. Okay. Yeah, and I think, uh, didn't Padre Pio say that angels would try to appear to him as either the Blessed Family or saints? If I recall, that would something um, that would, would be interesting well. to investigate. Yeah, and St. Ignatius of Loyola goes into a great uh, expose, if you will, of a lot of the uh, discernment of spirits and, you know, the angel of darkness cloaked with light. And, and uh, you know, so I highly recommend discernment of spirits of St. Ignatius of Loyola, getting to know Padre Pio. And I typically don't like to do this because this is just more of like my own private, my own private life and my my experience spiritually. Um, I have to exercise discernment and things that I that I say, but it's really I f I feel encouraged to just share this experience that I had in uh, next to the World Trade Center after my cousin and so many people tragically died. I went up uh, with Father Tetlow many many years ago, and we visited and prayed, and I stayed right across the the street at this hotel and um and I could not sleep and I was just I was restless and you know I had my eyes closed and I I began to see just like faces of of people just you know like this filtering of faces and what happened to me in prayer is just this this vocation this calling that I felt very deeply subjectively just I need to I need to pray I need to pray and, and sacrifice this kind of restless, you know, that I can't sleep. So I'm going to hit my knees and I'm going to pray for these people intentionally. Um, and, and it just, it really musters up exactly what you're sharing, Jimmy, is, is something that I firsthandly experienced um, in that, in that respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great thing to do when, you know, I, even though, you know, a bishop didn't come in and investigate your experience, mm -hmm. These experiences are real, and if you think you may be having one, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt to pray. Mm -hmm. Amen. should always be a catalyst for prayer, right? Yeah. And, to, and, and that's why subjecting yourself to the power in the name of Jesus Christ is so important. We heard that in the scriptures as we began this episode, and, and really seeing that power and seeing the effect 
of the power and the name of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, is is realized in the Apostolic College and their missions to Ephesus and Galatia and all these different uh, acts of the apostles' encounters with with you know the Great Commission and Jesus sending them out in His name to do these things and how people turned away from powers of sorcery and and manipulation. And they started to burn those books that that were leading them away from Christ, burn these practices uh, that were being encouraged through these books, turning away from that and turning more securely to Christ. Because I've got to share, like, there is no greater power to witness and there's no greater power to be a part of than the powerful name of Jesus. And it's important to separate elements in our lives that would keep us away from him, just like yes. the Ephesians did with those magical books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Jimmy, so I, I had one last question for you, and I think this is one that, you know, I've had people ask me before is about curses. You know, oh. can people be placed under a curse by, you know, a sorceress or a sorcerer or, you know, an incantation? And if, if cur- curses are real, how would one be lifted? So um, I did a whole episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Curses. So I'd encourage uh, you or I'll other listeners yeah, yeah. who are interested in that to check out that episode. Um, curses, what a curse is, is where you uh, speak, it, classically it's where you speak ill of someone in the hope of causing that to happen to the person. And the question would then be, well, what would cause it? And the options would seem to be, well, um, God or his agents, you know, like angels, or demons, or some kind of innate human ability. And that would be a uh, what we today would call a psychic power. And so if someone is, uh, if you're innocent, you know, you're a Christian, you're under God's protection, you rely on God, um, you, I don't think you have too much to worry about when it comes to curses, because God's not going to put one on you. You know, even if someone says, ooh, I hope he breaks his leg. Well, God's not going to cause you to break your leg, and God's not going to order his angels to, to have you break your leg. And most of the time, I mean, you can't really get demons to do what you want anyway. And so even if there's some someone who's praying to a demon and saying, oh, make him break his leg, the odds of that happening are pretty low. Um, I mean, I can't rule it out altogether, but God protects his people, and I don't think we need to live in fear or worry about that. And experience shows that, you know, that curses are not really very effective. If they were, they would be used all the time, and they're not, because they're not really effective most of the time. Then that would leave, uh, could there be an innate human ability that you could use to harm somebody? What we would call a psychic power. This would be a form, actually, of telekinesis also called psychokinesis, making something happen at a distance. Interestingly, Aquinas said, yeah. Aquinas said there is, in his view, there is a uh, power in the soul that you can use to remotely affect people for the worse. Um, this is, <clears throat> is Aquinas' explanation for the evil eye. And so he thought that if the soul is vehemently moved by hatred— it can actually remotely. Now he had a he had a kind of Aristotelian physical uh, physics uh, explanation for how this would work. But he said if the soul is vehemently moved to, to hatred and evil, you could remotely affect people for the worse. And he thought children were the most vulnerable for that because they, as the victims, because they have these weak little bodies compared to full grown adults. Um, interestingly, he didn't consider the reverse. Could you, if the soul is vehemently moved by love, could you maybe have a positive effect at a distance and maybe heal somebody? But Aquinas was open in principle to the idea that there could be psychic abilities like this. However, if one thing is fairly clear from modern parapsychology and all the research that's been done in the last hundred or so years, if these abilities exist, they're weak. And so once again, I don't think that people would have to really worry too much about curses. Not if you're not if you're a faithful Christian who's trusting in God. 
that, what that if you're not, image, though? that experience of like the eye, the, the, you know, just hearing you say that, I immediately think of Lord of the Rings with the mm -hmm. eye that's burning. And like, the, you know, there's so much space, you know, geographically between them, but it's like this immediacy of effect. Yeah. And what, what Aquinas thought, because in Aristotelian physics, there has to be a medium. You can't have like... Um, action at a distance without some physical medium connecting stuff. So it's like you can't hear anything without the medium of air, you know, to transmit the sound waves. Aristotelian physics thought that was true of everything, which incidentally is why uh, Isaac Newton got accused of natural magic when he proposed gravity, because it could work across a vacuum. And so he was accused of this spooky action at a distance with his magical gravity. But Aquinas, what Aquinas said is, so the soul gets moved by hatred, and it infects the, the hatred infects the eyes, and then the eyes transmit the harmful stuff through the air until they strike the victim of the wow. evil eye. Wow. Powerful. So hate, hate laser beams. Basically hate laser beam eyes, uh, yeah. Would that be like going to a, a Red Sox game at Yankee Stadium and the <laughs> crowd when the crowd just starts evil eyeing the uh, other team and they end up breaking down and making a mistake? I, I it, my knowledge of sports is limited, but that sounds accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling that as you on the golf course telecross. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Oh, God. Jimmy, we, we, one last thing, I guess. Yeah. And only because you promised it. And this is not a promise I could not let, uh, not cash in. Demon okay. babies. Oh, yeah, sure. I know this is the thing I've been really kind of yeah, anticipating. I, like, I, I don't know anything about demon babies besides sometimes when, uh, you know, go to maybe one of my friend's house and their kids are acting up. That's about the only <laughs> demon babies I know. There is a demon baby in the passion, I believe. You, there is, mm -hmm. yeah, in the Passion, yeah. in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Oh, that little um, demon baby was terrifying. Oh, my gosh, I yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like right up your spine, man. So so on this question, Aquinas considers, well, could there be uh, could there be babies that where, like, human women have been impregnated by demons? And this is actually something that has been wondered about for a long time, because if you go back into the Old Testament in Genesis 6, there's this mysterious story where the sons of God take wives from the daughters of men, and there are born to them the Nephilim. And Nephilim is a, an Aramaic word that means giants. Yeah. And so this is... People have said, well, this is the explanation for for why there were some giant people in the Bible, like Goliath, you know, um, that they were, their ancestors weren't fully human. They were angelic sons of God. And, and uh, the... The and and there's a very interesting case to be made for that, in which is really surprising. And I also have an episode of Mysterious World on the Nephilim where I talk about this. Um, and, but if you read the literature of this period, it actually supports that view. Now, when the age of the Church Fathers came along, there was a kind of reevaluation of that because they didn't have all the ancient Near Eastern literature that they were reading. Um, and there was a question of, well, okay, so if demons are, are, and are uncreated intellects, how could they, how could they impregnate somebody? Well, one of the things that Aquinas and others said is demons can assume temporary physical forms, and these physical forms that were referred to as aerial bodies. The idea was they use the matter in the air to make a temporary body, and then when they're done with it, it dissolves. And so the, they could physically interact with people through these temporary assumed bodies. But then there's a question, how far can they duplicate what humans can do with their bodies? Aquinas was of the opinion that they couldn't really reproduce, that they couldn't um, that they, they, they couldn't manipulate matter in such a way as to actually reproduce. Frankly, I'm not sure why he thought that, uh, it, you know, because if they can manipulate matter, why can't they, why can't they go all the way? Um, but, uh, and we know they can manipu manipulate matter. So without a divine revelation of their limits, I wouldn't know what their telekinetic limits are. Um, but in any event, Aquinas said he didn't think that they could actually um, 
impregnate anybody, but he thought they could do it indirectly because there are all these reports in the literature of the period of demons showing up in various forms and having relations with human beings. So an incubus shows up and has relations with the woman, a succubus shows up and has relations with the man, and Aquinas's idea was, okay, so you could have a demon show up as a succubus and get the germ cells needed from a man and then take those germ cells, appear as an incubus, have relations with the woman, and use the germ cells you got from the man, and the woman can become pregnant. But Aquinas's point, even though he thinks this happens, he credits the reports of this happening, he, he's, his ultimate point is the baby is still a human. Because even though there were demons involved as kind of IVF guys, IVF lab technicians, really it's still the son of a man. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, that sounds like a soap opera. I'm telling yeah. you, man, or like a Netflix series. Yeah. My goodness, <laughs> like, that's just... <laughs> It's like a big demon, shape-shifting, multi-gendered relationship that results in a little Damien baby. I mean, except some mysterious stuff. Yeah, except Aquinas would because Aquinas doesn't think that you that the demons could really manipulate the the baby. <laughs> so it's still really a human baby. It's got a human soul. You baptize it. It's a little bitty Christian, and everything is fine. Uh, hmm. We got to baptize like a lot these of babies, work. man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. even like a lot of work for nothing. Baptism. Well, Jimmy, this was incredibly insightful. Yeah, we got to have Jimmy back on for some yeah, more. Man, this, this was is, a blast. This is right up our alley. This is awesome. Yeah, this is perfect, Jimmy. You know, so you've got a lot of answers in the mm -hmm. Catholic faith. You've got Catholic answers. Frequently. How how can other people? Uh, you know, how can our people get in touch with you? Uh, do you have a web domain? How, you know, you've got your podcast. How, how can we get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, so uh, check out uh, Catholic.com. That's Catholic Answers website where I work. People can also check out JimmyAiken.com. My last name is very easy. It's a lot easier than people think it is because they want to add all kinds of extra letters to it. <laughs> it's just four letters, A-K-I-N, just like it sounds, Aiken. So go to jimmyakin.com and you can check out all the kind of stuff I'm doing on my own, including uh, my podcast, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. It's available wherever you get podcasts. It's available on YouTube. We have all kinds of uh, interesting episodes. What we do on that show um, is we look at mysteries from the perspectives of faith and reason. And we look at both natural mysteries and we look at supernatural mysteries. So we did a pair of episodes. These are episodes 105 and 106 on Aquinas and the Occult. So you can go back and listen to those for even more detail. As I mentioned, we did one on the Nephilim. Uh, we uh, have just a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it comes out every Friday. This last Friday, we did a medical mystery from the 1990s that was the Toxic Woman medical mystery that was so bizarre, it helped inspired an X-Files episode. Mm. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing an interview with one of the government's former military psychic spies. Wow. And, awesome. and as always, we treat uh, all these mysteries from both the perspective of reason, what would reason have to say about this, and the perspective of faith, what would faith have to say, with the Catholic faith specifically, have to say about this. So Fetus and Ratio really continues, continues to guide us, guide our church, Fetus and Ratio, faith and reason. It is such a blessing to have you on the show. Now, Sheil, I think you're, you were just about to share something. I was just going to say the reason, you know, when we're going down to record in Florida and you guys like, do you want to fly? I'm like, no, I'll drive. It's because I want to spend a couple hours listening to Jimmy Aiken's podcast. Uh, Mysterious World's awesome. Uh, Jimmy just, you know, like like you heard in this episode, breaking it down very reasonably, but very um, attuned to that there is, you know, some mysterious stuff out in this world. And it's not all just physical. There is a supernatural world. Um, if yeah. you're interested in that kind of stuff, seriously, there'll be a link on catholictalkshow.com. You can subscribe to uh, his podcast. You can find out his work um, with Catholic Answers. And then also our sponsors, Hollow and Catholic Monthly. And, um, you know, something that shouldn't be mysterious and won't result in demon babies or a curse, it would be... 
going to patreon.com forward slash Catholic talk show and finding different ways that you can support us instead of giving us the evil eye through the screen. Right, Father Rich? <laughs> That's absolutely right. And we've got some swag for people that support the show. Let me tell you, I had a buddy of mine, one of our parishioners here at St. John Paul II, wearing his Catholic talk show hoodie on a plane in Atlanta. And there were like, you're three guys. Hey, you watch the Catholic talk show? My brothers and sisters, this is amazing stuff to talk about. Each and every episode, we want to thank you so much for following us and having us on your commute or your morning routine. We want to wish you all the very best. But most importantly, we want to wish you a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. And we are calling out for that. So as we pray together, let's finish this episode with Philippians chapter two on unity and humility, the name of Jesus Christ that is above every other name. Have this in mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was by nature, God did not consider himself equal to God, being equal to God, a thing to be clung to, that we could actually understand it, but emptied himself, taking the nature of a slave and being made like unto men, and appearing in the form of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death and even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's keep our unity and our humility first at hand. And God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Peace.